Well, it is good to see you this morning. I hope you can say it's good to be seen. If not, we'll pray for you. And we are still Mark 14. Mark 14. But uh, just like last week, I had you mark Exodus. Okay? Now, I don't want you to mark Exodus this morning, but what I want you to do is I want you to also mark, like, put your finger in John 13. I want you to put your finger in John 13. I know it's, just, you know, it's, not, it's not some sort of new trend or pattern or anything else. It's just, you know, obviously last week, introducing the Passover and the, and the traditions and the preparations and things, it, it just lent itself. And if you know John 13, you know where we're going with that, and so you know it'll lend itself to setting up what is happening in Mark 14, 17 through 21. So we're in Mark 14, 17 through 21, but I want you to mark John 13 because we're going to, read several verses there as well. So Mark 14, 17 through 21, and the title of the message is simply Prediction at the Passover. Uh, you know, I guess we could say we have, like, within our series of Mark, this is a mini-series about the Passover, because we have a series within a series. At least that's the way I look at it. We have a few messages strictly about the Passover, which, which I love. You know, we talked about this last week. Just wrapping ourselves around a little bit more the Passover, the end of the Passover, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and, and then how much, how much emphasis we can give that, and then how much more we can unpack that for our benefit and our edification and just our observance of the Lord's Supper. So I. I'm glad we're able to do this. I'm glad that Mark is just putting the pieces together for us, setting the stage for us. So this is prediction at the Passover, and just, just five things we're going to notice this morning. First is simply the Savior's arrival, all right, the Savior's arrival. Then we'll see a selfless act, followed by a surprising announcement. Then we have the student's astonishment. And then finally, a sad affirmation. Okay? So we have a rival, we have an act, we have an announcement, astonishment, and an affirmation. All from Mark 14, 17 through 21. So let's go ahead and look at 17 through 21. We'll read that and see where the Lord takes us. It says, verse 17... When it was evening, he, of course talking about Jesus, came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Verse 19, They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It's the one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Very strong language from our Savior. And we understand the preparations have been made for the Passover. We covered that last week, following the man with the pitcher, getting things ready. So the preparations are made, and so now we see Evening is coming, they gather together. 
So verse 17 just tells us you know, they arrive. We know it's Thursday evening, uh, technically Nisan 15. So Jesus and the twelve, they arrive in Jerusalem to eat the Passover meal. Now the meal was supposed to start after sunset. Right, so it had to start after sunset, but you had to be done by midnight. Now, you know, think about this, just in context, of, you know, where you are. Can you imagine a dinner? I mean, how many people have dinner for, I don't know, five, six, seven hours? Sometimes I'd like to. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a slow, I want to sit down and kind of, you know, ease through the meal. I feel like I can eat more that way, too, because it just takes its time to go through. I like to take time with meals. I don't know if I could do five hours. That would be a little, that would be a stretch for me. But we also understand, not to, not to be lighthearted, but we also understand, you know, there were distinct steps. Okay, we, we covered the steps to the Passover. I mean, they were, they were, you know, drinking this here, reading this here, saying this here, studying this here, drinking this here, you know, singing the Hallels. I mean, there were all these different steps. So it was a process. But again, by law, they had to start after sunset, be finished by midnight. Now, Mark is interesting because he abbreviates. He really abbreviates the, the whole event of the meal. And really, he focuses on two things, on two incidents. He focuses first on Jesus' announcement of his betrayal. And then the second thing that Mark kind of dials in on is the institution of the Lord's Supper, you know, his new interpretation of the bread and the wine. And that's really, that's where Mark, that's, that's just where he, he digs in. So Mark tells us that they are, they're laying around, lounging, they're having their meal, and Jesus gets up and he does something he does something kind of unexpected. All right? He does something unexpected. And that's why we're going to John 13. All right? So go to John 13, verse 1. And, and I wanted to include this because in the context of, of the meal and the context of what they're talking about and the context of, of what's happening and what's going to happen, this paints such a, a more poignant picture for us. It, it gives us, I think, a better picture of the evening and it adds important perspective. All right, so John 13, verse 1. I'm going to go 1 through 17. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Just for That's, that's a long couple sentences. Have you ever encountered that in Scripture before? I mean, you, these sentences that go on four, five, eight, nine verses... Sometimes it's important to slow down and, and just look back through. Say, so, boy, there's a lot. There's a lot there. There are there are probably five sermons just in those few verses. We're not going to do that. But he says he got up and girded himself. Verse five. Then he poured water into the basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? <laughs> 
Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but it is completely clean. But it is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to him, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example, you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now, first of all, understanding that there's a, there's a wealth of material here. I, I understand that. I understand these 17 verses. There are a few really good sermons. We're just taking a snapshot because I want us to see this plugging in to the events Thursday evening. All right, so we're just plugging this in with what Mark has because I, I like the picture it gives us. And, and it's interesting because John, John gives us a lot more Jesus' instructions to his disciples than the other Gospels, you know, especially on that, on that Thursday. I mean, he, he gives us a ton. Chapters 13 through 17, right? 13 through 17 cover his teachings just on Thursday night. Just on Thursday night. But before he starts teaching again, what does he do? It says he washes their feet. Now verse 1 tells us that he was knowing, knowing his hour. Knowing his hour was coming. He, he knew the, the minutes were ticking off the clock. He knew his time was fast approaching. And so he was going to show them the full extent of his love for his sheep. And he was going to show them through, through his humble service. He was going to show them through his teaching. And then he was also going to show them as uh, John 18 and 19, chapter 18 and 19, showed through, through his death. So he's going to show them the full extent of his love. But then verse 2, 3, and 4 tells that, that it was during supper. Jesus, he knew some things. He got up and he girded himself. It says he knew Judas was going to betray him. In fact, he predicted it back in John 6, verse 70 and 71. He knew God was in control of all the events leading to his death. And so he voluntarily took this place of a slave to serve his disciples. He voluntarily took this place of a slave to serve his disciples, which which gives us such a sharp contrast to so many instances that we see with the disciples and their self-seeking attitudes. In fact, I think I put up some verses in, in Matthew 20 and Mark 9. Who's the greatest? Who gets to sit where? Luke 22, 24. So we, we have this sharp contrast. And isn't it true also that him putting himself in that position is just a picture of his earthly ministry? I mean, what was, where do we get the term servant leader? We, we get it from Jesus. Right? That's, that's how he characterized himself. So verse 2 through 4 gives us those things. Verse 5 says he, he became a servant. Yeah, he, he washed their feet. Now we know in Palestine, foot washing, was, it was critical. It was critical. Why? They had dusty streets. 
They had people with sandals, and they didn't wear socks with their sandals. I mean, Brandon would have really stood out. Pastor Brandon loves to wear sandals with his socks. I don't understand that. I, I, I think it's, I don't know, it's kind of weird. Um, but, man, in Palestine, you, you wouldn't do, you'd really, really stand out. You wouldn't just be some sort of strange yuppie or, or you know, beatnik or something. You'd, you'd, be, you'd be strange. You'd be like the guy with a pitcher of water. So we know we have people with sandals, no socks. And we also know it was a mark of honor for a host to provide a servant to wash guests' feet. And in fact, it was a breach of hospitality not to provide for that. I'd, again, put up some more references for that. So it was a breach of hospitality not to have some sort of plan to get people's feet washed when they came to your house. We know traditionally wives often wash their husbands' feet. We know that traditionally children oftentimes wash their parents' feet. Now, if you're a child and you would love to wash your parents' feet every day, no one's volunteering. I, I think we might institute that at our house. I think it might be kind of fun. We're going to all run around barefoot, come in, and, all right, kids, here we are. But it was. That, that, yeah, that's the way it worked. And we also know that you know, many people just simply washed their own feet. You know, a host might provide you know, a basin and towels and things. Or maybe they'd have the kids wash the guests' feet. I don't know. But it was, it was something that was provided for. It, it was necessary. All right? So Jesus took this role of a servant. Well, we get to verse 6 through 10, and Peter and Jesus have this conversation. Are we surprised that, G- that Peter's having this kind of confrontational conversation with Jesus? No! That's just who Peter was. Remember, I mean, Peter's the guy, if something's happening, he just, he just opens up his mouth and lets it out. This is what I'm thinking. Boom! There it is. I, I probably should have thought that through. I understand. But we ver- see verse 6 through 10. We have Peter says this, and Jesus says this. And Peter says, I don't get it. You're washing my feet. And Jesus said, it's, it's okay. You'll, you'll get it later. You will understand later on. And, and so then Peter says in verse 8, well, you're never. And I, I can see Peter doing it. I mean, Peter's he's kind of lounging there, and he's watching Jesus go around doing the foot washing. And he's thinking to himself, he's not doing that to me. He's, you know, he's, he's the boss. I'm not going to let him do that. So you can see Peeper, Peter, Peeper. I just call him Peeper. We'll call him Peter today. But you can see him doing that. You can see him cogitating on it. And all right, when he gets to me, this is what I'm saying. He says, no, Jesus, you're never, you're never going to wash my feet. Which is not the first time Peter has been insensitive or rude or inconsiderate or just brash or whatever else. He, again, it just kind of comes out. He says, you're not ever going to do that. And Jesus Again, says, well, you will have no part of me unless I wash your feet. Obviously, with, with, with the implication being, unless I, Jesus, wash your sins away, you have no real relationship with me. So then Peter, he takes it further. He says, well, if Jesus is going to wash my feet, well, then do it all. No, do my head, do my hands. You know, I, I got some stuff on my elbow. No, if you're going to wash one part of me, then I'm good with it. Do it all. Poor Peter. Once again, he misses the spiritual lesson. If we had a nickel every time you know, one of the disciples missed a spiritual lesson, we, we could at least buy a Dr. Pepper. But, but, so he misses the spiritual lesson. And Jesus says, look, essentially after salvation, that's why he says, you know, once you take a bath, if you've been walking around, the only thing you need to clean is your feet because 
streets are dusty. You're not wearing socks with your sandals. You're going barefoot with your sandals. So, but you're clean. The rest of you is clean. And so he's saying, look, once I wash your sins away, confession is what cleanses you from sin. And so here's, here's the lesson, Peter. But then he throws in this little jibe in, in verse 10. He says, but not all of you are clean. You know, and it doesn't say that they really paid much attention to that. Maybe they thought that, well, you know, does someone not bathe today? Or, or what's going on? Obviously, you know, he was talking about Judas. Judas was still there. And, and think about this too, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, kids of all ages. Think about this. Judas was still there. Did Jesus skip him when he washed feet? No. Did Jesus know Judas was going to betray him? Absolutely. Did he still deign to reach out and wash the feet of his betrayer? Yes. How powerful is that? I mean, he knew this guy is scheming against me. This guy hates me. He hates what I'm doing. He is against who I am and what I'm about. But he still, he still humbled himself to wash Judas' feet. And isn't that a great portrait of us? Because before we came to Christ, who were we? We were betrayers. We were haters. We were diametrically opposed to who Christ is. And, and yet he still, he still chose to reach out and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I just love the portrait that, that God provides with this. He says, you're not all clean. Judas, I'm still going to wash your feet. Then we get to verse 11 through 17. And I told you we'd, we're going to burn through John 13, 1 through 17. Don't worry, when we actually preach through John, we'll, it'll take much longer. But he says, do you know? He says, because he knew the one who was betraying him. That's why he said, you're not all clean. He went and washed the feet, put things away, sat back down. He says, do you know what I've done? And really... What he was trying to do was to teach them about being a self-sacrificing servant. And understand this also because people have obviously kind of taken this and run with it. Jesus was not establishing a right. He was not establishing another ordinance. Right? That's why when we observe the Lord's Supper, we also don't kick off our feet and wash each other's feet. It's not an ordinance. It's, it's an example. It's a response to his example. And he says in verse 17, If you know... If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. If you know these things about being self-sacrificing, about being a servant, about serving one another, you will do them. Because we understand that God blesses His servants not for what they know, but how we apply what we do with what we know. And we see this, the disciples, they struggled so many times with, with what? With what they knew, what they thought they knew, what they wanted, what their agenda was, what you know, their assumptions were. And sometimes we just point fingers, oh, you silly disciples. And, and, and guys, it's us. Man, how many Christians do we know? How many of us sometimes, how often are we self-absorbed? 
How often are we self-absorbed? Or how often do we think, well, how does this affect me? What will I get out of this? What will people think of me? This is my preference. This is what I like. Because we are so self-absorbed. And so often we miss, we miss those one another's that just flow through Scripture. The idea of putting other people first. And that's, what, that's, that's one of the things Jesus was trying to paint for him. He says, look, you call me teacher, you call me Lord, and I am doing the lowliest task. What do you think you should be doing? What do you think you should be doing? You definitely shouldn't be asking me who's sitting on my right hand and who's my left, on my left. You didn't, definitely shouldn't be saying, well, I, who's going to be the most prominent in your kingdom? He says, look, I just want you to, how can I be a servant to you? How can I serve you? How can I put you first? How can I consider one another, love one another, exhort one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, sharpen one another? How can we do those things? See, Jesus paints this wonderful portrait of humility for everybody there, for everybody here. And that's why I wanted us to go to John and see this after they get to the Passover and start observing the meal. He gets up and he, and he does this. He, he, he paints this great portrait. And then he continues with this surprising announcement over in verse 18. He gives us a surprising announcement. Verse 18 says, As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Well, the first thing I want to, I want to really just look at two things. I want to look at the table and the truth. But, but the table, and I put up there, Leonardo, no, because here's, here's, what, here's what happens. What a lot of people believe about, about the, the Last Supper has come from a painting by Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, you, you talk to a number of people and say, well, yeah, that's the one. And Jesus would sit behind the table, and they're all kind of sitting there, and John kind of looks like, you know, really he should be called Jonna or Mary or something else. And you know, so that's, this is where, believe it or not, I know this will surprise you. Some people build doctrine off of things like this. Now, don't get me wrong. I like Leonardo da Vinci. Leo, was a, he was a neat guy. He was brilliant. He was interesting. He was fun at parties. He did some cool stuff. But we, we, don't, we don't build theology off of paintings by Leonardo da Vinci. That, that's a no-no. So if you've done that, shame on you. Just like we don't, we don't you know, build theology off of books you know, that written by Dan Brown or, or anything called The Shack or anything like that. We, we don't do that. All right, don't do that. We we build theology right here. This is where it comes from. This is where doctrine comes from. So, no. It shows Jesus and his disciples are sitting at this table, and they're just kind of sitting up there like that. But no, that's wrong. Don't do that. It's absolutely wrong. What they were doing is they were leaning. It says they were leaning. They were reclining. I have another picture. It's a picture day here at Hope Baptist Church. We don't always get pictures. But, but this is, I mean, it's a little closer. Right? It's a little closer to what it, it might have looked like. 
<laughs> you know, I have to think that there's, there's some, there are some poor misguided souls who think, well, you know, the artist who was at the Last Supper, that's probably, they, got, they probably got it pretty close. <laughs> and they preserved this picture for thousands. Of, no! We have, to, we have to just base it on what, you know, we've read and studied and know culturally. So, so in, in Jesus' time, it, it was customary to recline on, on low couches or big pillows and sit around the table that way. That's how they did it. And they especially did it during a festive meal. In fact, it was a first century requirement. Now get this. It was a first century requirement to do this during Passover. I mean, that's listed in the Mishnah in Pesachim 10. Everybody go home and look that up in your Mishnahs at home. But it was a first century requirement. And so they said, no, when you're observing this, you've got to recline on large pillows or low couches around the table. And what would happen sometimes is, is they would lay with their heads near the table. They'd rest on their left elbow. And, and lots of times their left hand might, you know, might be resting their head or cupping their head. And then they could eat with their right hand. Okay? So they, the left hand might cradle their head sometimes or it might prop them and then the right hand they'd use it to eat. But that's why... That's why we, we read about you know, the disciple that Jesus loved. I love the fact that John identifies him that way, himself. And, and me, I'm the one he loved, remember? But that's why we could see John just kind of, I mean, they're all kind of lounging. And John could, his arm could get tired. He could just lean over on Jesus. Right? But that, that's how he could lean over and just kind of rest on Jesus for a little bit. is because, excuse me, of the way they were laying. So they're laying there, eating. Now, here's something interesting also. Because Scripture tells us that Jesus handed Judas what was called the SOP, S-O-P. It sounds better than it is. It doesn't sound good. I mean, if someone says, hey, I got a SOP for you. Okay, thanks. No, a SOP was good. It was a piece of bread dipped in this really good jam-like stuff. And and the SOP was... um, it was considered something that, that you give a, a guest of honor. I mean, it, it, was, it, was, it was a sign of, well, this is a special person. But here, here's what's kind of interesting. We know that, that Jesus didn't give John the sop, and the idea that we have is that sitting on the other side of Jesus was Judas. So John's sitting right there, maybe leaning on him. Judas is right here. Jesus hands him the sop, this great piece of bread and jam and stuff. So again, really good chance at sitting right next to Jesus, and this plays itself out better in John as well when we understand the conversation that Jesus and Judas have. That disciple that, you know, said, man, I'm his best friend on one side, and the one who was his betrayer on the other. The one whose feet he had just washed. And so we've got John and Jesus and Judas, and they're reclining, they're, they're leaning back, and, and you know they're having this meal together, and Jesus is teaching a little bit. And he's talking, and, and then he says this. He says, truly I say to you, truly I say to you, 
that one of you will betray me. He, he, he begins with this solemn introductory statement. He doesn't say, oh, and by the way, no, and, and isn't it interesting, you've got to figure that any time Jesus said, truly I say to you, it got the disciples' attention. Oh, oh, wait, this, this might be really important. I mean, we know that a lot of what he says is important. This could be extremely important. Let's pay attention. Let's dial in. Truly I say to you, one of you is going to betray me, one who's eating with me. And, and we get this idea of a lament. In fact, Mark is the only one who includes this phrase, and here's why. One who is eating with me. We only get that from Mark, all right? One who's eating with me. But what does that do? That, that, that alludes back to Psalm 41.9. What's Psalm 41.9? David is lamenting that his trusted friend Ahithophel, right? His friend Ahithophel, excuse me, shared table fellowship with him and then turned against him. Why is that? Poignant because dining with someone, dining with someone, and then betraying them was considered the height of treachery. All right, sharing a table with someone, sharing a meal, and then betraying them, stabbing them back, turning your back on them was considered that was the pinnacle of betrayal, but the pinnacle of treachery. And so, again, Jesus doesn't speak accidentally. It says, truly I say, one of you betray me, one who is eating with me. And, and that had to really, man, bring all sorts of images into the minds of the disciples. And we see that it does. I mean, everyone's surprised. We, we see in verse 19, everyone's astonishment. So, whoa! It says, they began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, surely not I. Surely not I. It says everyone. Now we don't know if everyone started talking at one time. Because they, 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 were, they were astonished. They were surprised. It caught them off guard. They weren't expecting Jesus. I mean, he, he just you know, performed this poignant act. And he's talking to them. And, and who knows what else they're talking about. I'm sure he's saying some, some deep things. They don't expect him to come out of left field and say, Oh, Truly, someone is going to betray me. And then he dials it into the room. He says, there's someone at the table. So they are, they are understandably astonished. So everyone is grieved, mostly. And, and it's interesting, they all sought to clear themselves. They wanted to clear their name. In fact, the question in Greek literally is this. The question in Greek is, it is not I, is it? This is what they're asking. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. It is not I, is it? They were expecting some kind of reassuring negative response from Jesus, but he doesn't name the offender to the group. He doesn't call attention specifically. But, but think, think about that question. Now, these are guys who consider themselves followers. They consider themselves faithful. And they say, well, it's not I, is it? I mean, it's like, you know, you're sitting at your, your table. when you're, Your children are sitting around. Your grandchildren are sitting around. And you say, hey, someone's going to, you know, burn the house down. And, you know, and, and everybody there is a pretty good kid, pretty good person. It'd be like all this. Well, it, it's not, 
Is it me? Am I going to do that? I don't know if some of it was just just a a knee-jerk response. Well, well, wait a minute. Are you talking about me? Do you know something about me that I don't know? And Jesus could have said yes. But they all, I mean, they all sought immediately, Jesus, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And I love the fact that even Judas, in fact, Matthew 26, 25, says even Judas Asked the Lord, surely not I. And here's what Judas asks. He says, surely not I, Rabbi. Everyone else is saying, Lord, is it me? Judas is the only one who says, teacher, is it me? Was Judas being a smart aleck? I don't know. Did Judas want to try to fit in with everyone else? I mean, everyone else was asking. I don't know, but we know that Jesus and Judas had a conversation. That's why I think when he had them to stop, they're right there next to each other. And you, I mean, you can see, again, I, I picture there's some agitation at the table. There's some excitement at the table. There's some astonishment at the table. And, and people are asking, well, is it I? Is, that, is it you? Is it you? Is it me? What did he say? Did he say who it was? And Judas, I can see Judas kind of leaning over. And again, I'm visual, and so I get different things in my head, almost with a, with a, a slyness to him, and saying, Rabbi, is it I? Almost slyly and smugly. So we know in John that uh, in Matthew that, that Jesus clearly points him out. I mean, Jesus says, basically says, "Yes, you, you know it's you, and I know it's you. We know it's you." John thirteen twenty eight twenty nine unpacks that a little bit for us. Um, and here's what's interesting too, because remember that then Jesus says, you know. What are you going to do? You know, go do it quickly. Now we know our, our disciples were so distracted that they really didn't pick up on it. All right. In fact, John tells us, well, Jesus is telling him to go take care of something for the meal, or he's telling him to go do something, you know, to help the poor. That that was their assumption when Jesus told Judas, you know, what you're going to do, go do it. Go do it quickly. Get. So we know that they had a little conversation. He identified him, and Judas left. Because, understand this, if the disciples had known that Jesus was pointing at Judas and saying, oh, no, guys, it's not you. It's him. Do you think they would have left, let him out of the room? You, you think Peter would have said, oh, Judas, shame on you. No! Peter would have been across the table. Judas would have been up in the air with Peter's hands around his throat. We understand that about Peter. Man, that's the kind of guy, remember, he's the ear-cutting-off guy. That's the kind of guy he was. So we know that they just didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Let's be surprised. But we know that they didn't get it. We know that, and again, I, I think it was this insidious little, hey, Jesus, is it I? 
And Jesus says, you know, dude, you know it's you. And then maybe a little louder. Now go quickly and do what you need to do. And that's what everyone else heard. And so they see Judas get up and leave after Jesus talks a little more. But they, but they see him go. And as John says, well, he's, he's running some errand for Jesus. That's nice. Maybe he's going to help some poor people because he's got the money box. That's what he does. <laughs> Judas is always out helping poor people. That's why we don't have any money in the money box. That's why we can't buy fish and we can't buy bread. It's because Jesus, Judas is out there helping poor people. That's got to be what it is. So, before Judas leaves, we understand that Jesus continues his thought with the, the, the closing verses of this passage in verse 20 and 21. And it's simply this. It's a sad affirmation. Because verse 20 says, He said to him, It is one of the twelve, so somebody here in the room, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Well, the first thing he does is, is, again, he reminds him how intimate it is. He says, you know, it's one of the twelve, someone who's dipping with me in the bowl, because they would share bowls of different things. And they would dip bread and, and stuff in these bowls. So, once again, Jesus is reemphasizing the intimate nature of his betrayal by pointing out that, yeah, it's someone who's sharing a table with us. You remember the account of David and Ahithophel. All right, it's kind of like that, only bigger. So there's one right here. He says, look, you know, I will go. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written. He's saying, look, I must die to fulfill Scripture. And we understand that his death was according to God's plan, not simply because of a betrayer's action. God planned it, orchestrated it, put it together. He says, so I, I will go, just as it is written. But then we get this, this tragic statement. He says, but woe to that man. Woe to that man. And, and I, put up, I put up the Greek word just because it's an interesting word. It's uahi. It's all vowels, you know, in the way we look at it. Uahi. But it's, but woe, and, and when you see this word in multiple places, it, it occurs, I want to say like 115, 118 different times in Scripture. And, and when you see it, it's, obviously it's not, a, it's not a happy thing. It's a lament. It, it denotes a heartfelt pity. It's just a woe to that man literally through whom the Son of Man is being betrayed. Now we know that the betrayer was acting as Satan's agent. Okay, I mean, it's clearly identified, you know, it says, you know, the devil had prompted Judas to do this, and and we know that um, as he was leaving, that Satan entered Judas. Luke 22, 3, John 13, 2, John 13, 27. Unpack that a little bit. We need to understand this also. See, Satan's part in the betrayal of Jesus doesn't remove 
any responsibility from Judas. All right? It doesn't remove responsibility from Judas. Because in God's sovereign will, and according to his timetable, he uses sinful people, but that doesn't excuse sin. Everyone, all of us, we all are held accountable. We are all held accountable. And so Jesus says, Woe to that man whose sin will not be excused. Woe to that man whose plight will not be lessened by fulfilling the decrees of God and by accomplishing the prophecies of the Bible. You, you see, like Judas, I, you know, I, I don't think Satan really knew that Jesus' death and resurrection were the linchpin of God's plan. I don't, I don't, I don't think you do that. Obviously, Jesus knew the plan. But it says Jesus tells him that it would have been good if this man had never drawn breath. Had never drawn breath. Be better for him. So, so awful a destiny of eternal separation and damnation awaited this, this woeful one. That it would have been better if he had never been born. And some people think that's just a moniker for Judas. But let me help you with something this morning. The same same is true today. There, There is great woe. There is great woe for those who don't know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There is great woe. That's why the Bible says, repent and believe. The Bible says, now is the time of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. Now is. Woe to you if you aren't. Woe to you if you don't know the King of kings and the Lord of lords. To not know and to go the way of Judas and countless others. It's a horrific destiny. And things would be better for you if you had never drawn breath. So if that's you and you don't know, then, then woe to you if you don't know the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And, and man, our, our prayer is, is that you would repent. Our prayer is that God's consuming, convicting power would come over you and bring you to faith. But, what about us who do know? Maybe there isn't great woe, but, but let me ask you this. Could we, could we simply ask the disciples' question, surely not I? Surely not I? I haven't betrayed Jesus. I haven't broken fellowship with my Lord and Savior in my thoughts or my words or my actions. Have I? Lord, surely not I. Surely I haven't failed to demonstrate self-sacrificing service or love or compassion or anything else. 
for my brothers and sisters and my non-brothers and sisters. I think we can each say, surely, Lord, surely not I. Is it I? Have I offended? Have I betrayed? See, because while we aren't crushed and afflicted, we, we are still compelled and admonished to respond to his example in obedience and in love and in faith. And again, as, as we approach the institution of the Lord's Supper and as we approach our observance of the Lord's Supper. That's, it is so much more poignant to look at things like this and say, Lord, is it I? Have I broken my fellowship with you or have I broken my fellowship with one of my brothers or sisters? I'm thankful that our, our, our preaching has, has brought us where it has brought us, when it has brought us. And church, I'm also prayerful that as we say so often that, that we examine our fellowship and we examine our fellowship and then we examine our fellowship outside the walls, our influence, our impact. And then as we ask, well, surely, Lord, is it I that we can, as much as it depends on us, be at peace, our Savior, and be at peace with those around us. And then be a prominent influence on those around us with the gospel. It's my prayer for us this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we, we do praise you again, Lord, for who you are and, Lord, for the fact that you, you show us so much. And God, you bless us so mightily. And Lord, we... we we just praise you this morning for the power and the strength and the beauty of Scripture. For the sharpening that it provides and, and Lord, for the example that you painted for us. Father, I just ask for your hand on the remainder of our time that we might offer up something that is, is somewhat worthwhile to you. Lord, that we would, as much as it depends on us, do our best to maintain our fellowship and our love and our, and our unity and, and our service. So, Father, thank you again for who you are, for the privilege of being called yours. And Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name.
Amen.